Welcome to episode five of the Radical Simple Living podcast. Um, if this is the first time you've listened, uh, pleased to welcome you. And if you're returning after listening to some of the earlier episodes, uh, we carry on our journey today. Um, either way, it's the same format. It's basically me. I have no script. I have a few words jotted down on a piece of paper here. And I will talk about them. I'm in my kitchen in the Swedish forest with a cat or two. And the only editing suite I have is a pause button. Okay, so this uh, this is a fairly relaxed podcast. The idea is that I'm having a conversation with you. A pretty one-way conversation, I'm afraid. But uh, it's, it's, it's nothing more than that. So I'm imagining you're sitting here with a cup of tea, like me, and you want to talk about simple living and about that journey that you are maybe taking or that you're planning to take. And that's going to be our starting point for today. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why simple living is in the news. I, I must tell you that I've been living... Simply, I think, for, for most of my adult life, but I've certainly been following a radical simple living course for the last 20 years, since the summer of 2003. And at the time, people didn't really, A, understand or B, care very much. But now they do. Now, all of a sudden, lots of people are interested in simple living and lots of people believe that living more simply can help us out of some of our current difficulties. And let's just reiterate what some of those current difficulties are. We are living in a world which has just hit a population of 8 billion people. Now, obviously, if we look back in history, there were times when we could count the population of the world in millions not billions. And that wasn't too long ago. It was only a couple of thousand years ago, in actual fact. And I can remember all the time as a child hearing about the population of the world and how it's increasing and how things are going to go wrong. And we thought we'd solve the problem. You know, there was a time when we thought that we'll increase birth control and we thought the better standard of living would mean the population of the world would start to come down and start to um, even out. That hasn't happened. The population of the world has carried on growing. And we know that scientists are now saying that the population of the world will stop growing fairly soon. But that's what they said back in the 1970s. And that wasn't the way forward. So we really don't know. What we are aware of is that if the population of the world is 8 billion, we can't carry on in the same way as we might do if the population of the world was much, much less, maybe 3 or 4 billion. So many of the ideas that people assumed were simple living in the old days simply aren't going to work anymore because there are two many people. There are too many mouths to feed. There are too many people to get their land. So that's one of the things that is turning people back to an idea of simple living 
that in some way it's going to help with the situation of an ever-growing world population because we've got to be fairly uh, concerned about people that don't get enough. We've got to be worried about how the sharing out of the Earth's resources go and as soon as we start to look at that for only a short amount of time we realise that it's not being done very fairly at all. In fact, you could say the rich are getting very rich and the poor are getting poorer. We can certainly say the poor are increasing in numbers and maybe simple living can help with that problem. The other worries that we have nowadays are with things like the supply of food and the supply of energy. Once upon a time, we believed we could go to the supermarket whenever we needed something. We're running a bit short of this. Oh, we'll go to the supermarket and pick up some more. But I think starting off with the um, COVID pandemic and then afterwards with some of the economic issues that have hit us, we realise that this isn't quite as clear as it used to be. We have worries nowadays about our food security. We wonder if some of the things that we can find on the supermarket shelves today are not going to be there tomorrow. And whilst this worry is not really material yet, most people when spoken to do think that food security is going to be a growing issue in the future. And I don't only mean individuals think that, I mean governments and international organisations are also saying that food security is something we have to worry about. The third great thing that causes us sleepless nights is energy. Energy is in short supply. Energy to do anything. Electrical energy, gas energy, chemical energy in the forms of petrol or gas you'd call it in the States. All of these things are not as secure as they used to be. Now two things can happen. We can either have incredible shortages of fuel and energy with all the problems that that causes or we can allow the prices of these things to get so high that the rich are able to afford all the energy they want. They can carry on launching themselves into space or jet-setting around the world to go to meetings on different continents or to attend events. They can live in vast uh, houses where every room is heated and they're not going to worry because they've always got the means to pay for the energy, however expensive it gets. But for most of us, we have to now be careful about the energy we use. We have to think carefully when we turn things on. If we want to cook something, we've got to weigh up the benefits of, oh, can I really put the oven on to cook this, or should I cook something else instead, or should I use some other device that uses less energy? These are good questions, because wasting energy is a terrible thing. But there may be questions that people weren't expecting 30 years ago. They certainly weren't expecting them 50 years ago, um, but now we are. So that's yet another reason why people are believing that living a more simple life might help them over those problems. It might help with food. It might help with energy. It certainly will help with some of the other things that uh, we need to do in life. 
Now, last week I suggested that the starting place, I'm just going to pause to put a log on the fire. I'll be back. There we go. Um, yeah, we, we need to position ourselves to where we're starting on this journey to a simpler lifestyle. And as I said last week, all of us are starting from very different positions and all of us have got different places to go to. But the first thing I want to put into context is the idea that the mood we're in at the moment in thinking things are getting more difficult and thinking those of us that have children, that our children aren't going to be as materially well off as we are. And you may think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Chances are it's a fact. We've got to get used to it one way or another. And we know that these are difficult times but they're not as difficult as you might think. And I want to tell you about a, two, a few times in history when people have turned to more radical, simple living solutions as a way of trying to um, come to terms with the situation they find themselves in. And so let's go back quickly. We won't be long. I hope you've got time to go back with me to 17th century England. Now, in 17th century England, they had something called the English Revolution. Now, most people I've spoken to that don't come from Britain um, don't know what the English Revolution was. In fact, I had an, uh, a discussion with a Russian once who laughed at me and said, there never was an English Revolution. Well, there was, and this is what happened. The monarchy in England, and it is England at the time the United Kingdom hadn't been formed yet, the monarchy in England was getting very difficult. They were taxing people to uh, fund foreign wars. They were taxing people to build sumptuous residences for members of the royal family to live in. And there was a certain kind of arrogance in the royal family which people didn't like. And we know that what happened is there was a great uprising um, in lots of parts of England to try and, and resolve this situation and come up with some fairer ways to run society. And the, the Fenlands of England, uh, in the east, um, not quite East Anglia, but before the East Midlands and East Anglia, you would consider the Fens to be that very marshy part of England right there, around Cambridge and Ely. And from the Fens came Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was a not a poor man, he was a, a landowner. He's uh, in the same family as Thomas Cromwell, who you will remember if you know about Henry VIII and the Reformation. He was the, in the same family as Thomas. And without going into a lot of history, Oliver Cromwell managed to fight a civil war, to overthrow the rule of the monarchy, to do all sorts of things like abolish the Church of England, abolish the House of Lords, abolish the monarchy, and set England up as a commonwealth, as he called it. Now, it was an exciting time because some people thought that was the end of the world, you know, uh, abolishing the monarchy, abolishing the Church of England. People were worried. And there were technological changes too, one of which was the printing of simple pamphlets became very cheap and easy to do, much in the way that blogging or podcasting gives lots of people like me, a voice that they wouldn't have otherwise. Printing pamphlets gave people a voice too. And 
one of the groups that came out of the Civil War were called the Diggers. And the Diggers were interesting because they saw radical, simple living as an answer to all the problems. And what they wanted in a nutshell, I'll put a link on my website, radicalsimpleliving.blogspot.com and I'll put a link there so you can find out more about the diggers. But basically they said all we have to do with England is divide it up into lots of little squares of land, a few acres, and give everybody, give every family a few acres of land and let them grow food on it and keep animals on it and build a house on it. Now, I, radical by name, radical by nature, the diggers didn't achieve their aim. In fact, they, they, they did have some problems. They, they got involved with these other groups called the Levellers and uh, the Quakers are the group that we still have from that uh, time that exists today. And their ideas didn't die with them. The diggers have died out. I have met one or two people that claim to be diggers, but the idea of the diggers died out. Sorry, the diggers themselves died out, but their ideas stayed on. And those digger ideas aren't uncommon and they did crop up in some other places now, more about that in a minute there were other moves too in um, Scotland uh, the people were driven off the land because the rich landowners decided they wanted to farm in a different way and many of these poor farm workers and tenants were forced to go into a kind of self-sufficiency called crofting which meant basically they built a small house, they had a little bit of land around there which to grow crops, and they kept their sheep up on the hillside on common land and brought them back down. There are still crofters today in Scotland. And that idea was important too, and we'll come back to that as well. And then we've got another thing that happened, and this is in a part of the world that everybody knows a lot about nowadays, it's the Ukraine. And in the Ukraine, and I often wondered why in English we always call the Ukraine the Ukraine, when everyone else calls it Ukraine, and I wonder why we don't, but that's an aside. I did warn you once before that I do tend to ramble a little bit, but there we go. Catherine the Great, the ruler of Russia, had this vast area of wasteland where nothing grew, which was underfarmed and nobody wanted to farm it and she didn't know what to do about this and she had an idea at the time in germany a group of people called mennonites were being persecuted they were pacifists and didn't want to fight in german princes armies and because of that they were kicked out of the german states where they were living and they were looking around europe for a home and Catherine the Great, or one of her advisors, had the great idea of, right, let's let the Mennonites into the land that's called the Ukraine and let them do what they can with the land to improve it and to grow more food. And that's what happened. The Mennonites came out of Germany. They went to live in the Ukraine in some other parts of Russia and they worked incredibly hard on improving the quality of the land by the techniques that we know today so well, by the use of manure, by tilling, by fencing, by hedging, by mixing their crops, by keeping animals on the same farms as they grew crops. And they did a spectacular job. And that's pretty wonderful.
And that's not the end of the history lesson because something happened then that brought all these ideas together. And it didn't happen in Europe at all. It happened in North America because, as you know, vast numbers of people left Europe to travel to live in North America. Well, what took them there? Well, some of it was about religious freedom. They wanted the freedom to worship in any way they wanted. They didn't want to be told if they lived in England, you had to be a member of the Church of England, which was restored after Cromwell's time. If they lived in Germany, they didn't want to be told that they had to be Lutherans. And if they lived in Poland, they didn't want to be told that they had to be uh, Catholic. And if they lived in some parts of the world, they even found themselves out of place because they couldn't find any religious group that seemed to satisfy their needs. The Mennonites in particular felt that they were always at risk of being cast off the land in Europe and wanted somewhere else to live. So some people from England who had origins with the diggers, or if they didn't have origins with the diggers, carried forward some of those ideas through groups like Quakers, for instance. A large number of those Mennonites from Russia and the Ukraine and Germany and Switzerland and Holland also set off for America and an awful lot of those crofters, when times got different, went to America. And in America, what they wanted was land. They didn't want to be enormous land kings, a term that Abraham Lincoln used. They wanted enough land to build a house, to feed their family, and to um, maybe sell some things on and earn a little bit of money for some of the other things they had to do. Now we've all seen in films that homesteaders in America, land grabs, going across, little house in the prairie, off into the west, find yourself a piece of land, build yourself a cabin and start to work the land and grow prosperous. And that's what they did. And that movement is still strong. I know lots of people in the States today and in Canada who consider themselves homesteaders. They consider themselves the inheritors of that great tradition that goes back in America and then coming back to Europe with some of those movements we've spoken about. And they want to be able to do that. Now, in many ways, it's easier to do that in America than it is in Europe, because if you do live in America, if you live yourself on a homestead in America, go on the internet one time and think of a country in Europe and try and find out how much it would cost to buy your kind of setup in France or Germany or Britain or Sweden. And you will find it will make your hair stand on end. Land in Europe is scarce. Land in Europe is expensive. In America, there are still parts of the country where on fairly modest amounts of money, you can buy yourself enough land to start a homestead and to be self-sufficient. Okay, so again, in times of stress, people have turned to simple living, just as people are turning to simple living today. And there's a couple of other things that I want to mention. One of them is the idea of growing your vegetables. Now, in World War One and World War Two. Buying produce from any part of the world that had it to sell 
stopped being possible. We know that there just wouldn't have been enough food, either in North America or in Europe, in either of the Great Wars, if it wasn't for a movement called Dig for Victory. In the States, they were called Victory Gardens. In Britain, people were encouraged to dig up their back garden, dig up their cricket pitch, dig up the village green, dig up the parks in London, dig up any bit of land that you could get your fork into, turn it over, put some compost in, and grow some vegetables. The Dig for Victory movement, even though both wars were relatively short, the First World War, four years in Europe anyway, and, and the Second World War, five years, people who had never grown vegetables before started to do it. People who were, before the war, sitting looking at their front lawn and thinking about a deck chair out there, a short time into the World War, were out there digging and planting carrots and beetroot and potatoes and all sorts of other things and doing very well of it. Because one of the things we know is that people intensively micromanage vegetable land. They get an incredibly good crop. You too can get a good crop if you've got a little bit of land and you really work hard on it and you really do all the right things and you really experiment. You'll have failures, you'll have things go wrong but you will be so productive because you're going to care for it and you're going to look after it and you're going to make sure it doesn't go short of things and you're going to be looking out for pests and you're going to be choosing the right varieties. You're going to be making your own compost. You will work wonders. Some of you listening to this already know the truth of this statement and others of you that have never tried growing your own vegetables will realise it. Things will go wrong. If you the, the big thing is to try as many crops as you can and try as many varieties as you can and try different sowing times. Experiment. After a year, you'll have more information. After two or three years, you'll start to become an expert on what grows well in your garden and the climate you have and what doesn't. So digging for victory, we can still remember. Uh, you can still go to a second-hand bookshop or a thrift shop in your neighbourhood and you can find vegetable growing books from the Second World War that are so full of good information and good ways to do things. There's more up-to-date stuff too, of course, but some of that wartime inf information is wonderful. Um, how to rotate crops, how to get two crops in a year off a bit of land that you might only get one off normally. Very, very important, very easy to start. Where I'm talking from, it's winter. There's deep snow outside. It's been a very cold December so far here. But I'm already thinking about when spring comes and what I'm going to do and what I'm going to be planting and where I'm going to plant it. I've got to pause to let a cat out of the room. Yes, there's nothing more uh, indecisive than a cat. There you stand at a door and start to scratch it to go out and then you stop recording your podcast, you lose your train of thought and the cat decides not to go out of the door after all. And so you close the door and go and sit down and then the cat changes its mind again and decides it does want to go out the door. So there we go. Yeah, the last thing I want to talk about in this little time about things um, in difficult times, people turning towards radical, simple living was the sort of eco hippies of the very late 1960s and the 1970s. 
And eco-hippies, quite a lot of them, just went and got hold of some land somehow, renting or buying or just squatting, and grew crops. And yes, they too are still with us. Some of the people you talk today uh, in their 70s or 80s were there and did it. And some of them are still growing crops and some of them are still trying to find the same ideal. Uh, that times they're changing and we need to change with them. And uh, one of the ways we can change, one of the ways we need to change is by thinking about radical, simple living. Not only growing food, but all aspects. Now, last week I told you that the journey towards simple living doesn't start by growing things. It doesn't start by changing your home or changing all sorts of things about you. It changes because you change in your attitude. And last episode was talking about how attitude changes in you will make your life more simple without even thinking about it. Changes like being kinder to people, changes like treating everybody with equality, changes like not being judgmental of other people, and changes about dressing in a way that you're not using your body as a way to try and impose status or impose uh, a position on other people. You dress for what you want to do, you treat everybody, however high or low they may be, you treat them as equals, doesn't matter about their sex, their race, their sexual orientation, none of those things matter, their age doesn't matter, it's that equality that's important. And I got quite a lot of feedback from this in various places. And one of the per, uh, one of the people that wrote to me said, well, you know, you've said, and I agree with all these things, but you've said nothing about honesty. And I said, well, I am going to talk about honesty soon, and now's a good time. Because honesty is important for simple living. Simple living is about what you are, and not what you do. And being honest is important. Now, of course, we should be honest with other people. But we should also be honest with ourselves about what we're doing and why we're doing it. If we make the decisions live more simply, we've really got to spend a bit of time, first of all, thinking about how we want to live. And then being honest with ourselves of how much of that we're actually doing. So, for instance, you may think, yeah, to live a good, simple life, I've got to start cooking from ingredients. I've got to go and buy vegetables or I've got to grow vegetables and I've got to come home and dice them and cook them and come up with all kinds of wonderful dishes. Now, that's fine, but you've got to do it. It's no good saying you're going to do that or thinking, oh, I'll do that and then never actually doing it because then you're being dishonest, not with other people, but dishonest with yourself. You're telling yourself you're going to do one thing and then you're doing the other. Now, you can't be dishonest with yourself. Main reason be, being you always know what you said and you know what you're not doing. So spend a long time. I, I know these podcasts can be listened to at any time, but the time it happens to be when I'm recording this one is coming up to the end of the year. It's the middle of winter in the northern hemisphere. It's the middle of summer in the southern hemisphere. But 
whichever hemisphere you live in, the end of the year comes on the same day. And when that change of year comes, a lot of people think about resolutions and changing things. And there's no reason why that particular date should be good, but a lot of people choose to use it. So if you're going to make some big changes in your life, don't just write them down on a piece of paper and think, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do something else. What you really have to do is to be honest with yourself about what you're actually doing in terms of improving your life by making it more simple. And you've also got to be honest about how am I going to do this and why am I doing this? If you're doing it so you look good on social media, if you're doing it so your neighbours think, oh, they're growing lots of vegetables in their garden, these are the wrong reasons. You really need to want to do it because you think it's going to make a difference to your life and it's going to make a difference to the lives of people on the planet. So do try to be honest with yourself about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, next episode is going to be a really important one, I think, um, that will tie in perfectly with the change of year. So uh, you mark that one in your diary. It should be up next Monday, Monday evening. But for the end of this podcast, for the time I've got left, because I think nobody can listen to my life, my voice for too long, um, it's about skills. Because if it is winter, where you are, where you're listening to this, or even if it's autumn, or even if it's spring, you have the chance and the time to develop some new skills. Now, skills is an interesting word. And, and one of the reasons it's interesting is because English, because England had so many invaders back in the early days, it picked up words from all over the place. And skills is a Viking word. It came from Scandinavia, where I am now. And people think they know what skills are. But the Anglo-Saxons also had a word for the same thing, and they called it crafts. So to an Anglo-Saxon, craft, to a Viking, skill. And we think of those words as meaning something quite different. But for our purposes here, I want you to think about them as the same things. You can learn skills and crafts, and you can make your life more simple by being able to do some things that you can't do at the moment. Now, on one scale, this could be a big skill. You could say, right, I'm going to teach myself how to make clothing. I've never done it before, but I'm going to teach myself to make clothes. Or you could say, I'm going to teach myself to make furniture. Those are grand aims, and I'm entirely supportive of you in trying to do those. Those are long-term skills that you need to, to learn and choose one you want to do. It doesn't matter what your sex is. You know, if you're, if you're male and you want to take up knitting or if you're female and want to take up carpentry, what's stopping you? Just do it. It doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do with, with sex. It's got everything to do with your aims and aspirations. One of the skills we can all do is get better at saving energy. We can get better at cooking. We can get better at being parents. We can get better at being partners. All of these are skills we can learn. But there are also some very simple skills. One of the skills I've recognised I'm bad at 
is tying knots. Whenever I do anything on the land here, from putting up a washing line to trying to tie something to the, the barn, or tie, I'm terribly bad at tying knots. And um, I was never a Boy Scout, so I never learnt it that way. But I've got a little book on knot tying. And I thought what I'm going to do over the winter, when it's snowy outside and when there's not much to do, I'm going to sit down in the evenings with a bit of rope and I'm going to try and learn all the knots that I don't know. Because I will be able to teach other people that when I know it, pass it on to my children. But it's also going to be quite useful for the life I lead in that knot tying is something I need to do occasionally. So that's what I mean by learning skills. Big skills, dressmaking, weaving, carpentry, all of those are big skills. But there's plenty of little skills you can hone in on and work on um, and make your own. Now, how do you set about learning a skill? Well, you can go to evening classes. They do evening class in dressmaking, they do evening class in carpentry, they do evening class in metalwork, all sorts of things. If you live in a city, which I don't, and there are places that offer these things, you can take full advantage of them and try and learn some skills that way. If you haven't got that resource, there's a few things you can do. Obviously, you can buy books and again, have a good route round to Canadian bookshops, charity shops. There's some wonderful books on all kinds of skills when, from the days when people had more time, when they didn't spend so much time on the internet properly. And there's YouTube. Now, you have to be a bit picky with YouTube because some of the people on there aren't teaching you very much and some of the people are. But I, I've found some wonderful... I have to cope with a lot of tree felling here. I have to fell trees that are diseased. I have to coppice trees. I have to sometimes remove dying branches from trees so it doesn't affect the rest of the tree. And I found a couple of people on YouTube who are so good at this and they show you how to do it. And, and when I go out to do it, I feel confident and competent that I can do it because I've watched it. You can watch a YouTube video 30 times just to get it right. You can take notes. You can rewind. You can do all sorts of things. And it's a very good way to learn skills. You've got to practice. You can't just watch it and think, right, now I can go and fell a tree. You've got to watch it and then go out and start small and work your way up to something really good. But you can do it. So YouTube, I would recommend secondhand books, books from the library. I would go there too. But don't forget, you can always ask people to teach you. And maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But particularly people who are elderly. Um, they know a lot about things like knitting and crochet and treating furniture. You know, how to get a... a a wood stain on furniture, things like that, all kinds of skills which if you don't ask them and those people are in their late 70s or 80s at the moment, those skills are going to be lost. So do take the time to talk to elderly people in your community who may have skills that they can pass on to you. And OK, some might be better at others than teaching those skills and some may not want to do it, but you never know. And finally... If you are somebody with skills, if you are somebody that's skilled at any bit of arts or crafts or cookery or gardening or growing or building, share those skills. 
you know, consider whether you want to put up things on YouTube showing how to do things. Um, these things are important because if times get hard, skills are going to be important. Remember, if we have a real problematic um, winter or two, people that can knit socks are going to be more important maybe than people who can sell advertising. No disrespect if you sell advertising, but you know what I mean. Somebody that can knit socks, the world's going to beat, her, beat the path to their door because they're going to be needed. Okay, I'll wind up there. Thank you so much for uh, joining me this week. I enjoyed talking with you. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Do leave comments. Do find this podcast and like it and rate it on whichever platform you use. And I'll be so happy to see you again next time. And for now, it's goodbye and enjoy your simple life.